brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep.com on time, on target. We're starting off this episode with Nick Kaufman, former Marine, and you must be feeling really good, man, because this story that you've been working really hard on for probably a couple of years now at this point. Yeah. Yeah, it's been two years. Yeah, so the Marsoc 7 officially exonerated after 10 years. Uh, there's a bunch of articles you wrote about them, and you know, you wrote a newest article about the exoneration. We had Major Fred Galvin back on uh episode 198, uh, which you hooked us up with, and then episode 205, we had Fred Galvin on with Lieutenant Colonel Steve Morgan. Those were both really good in-depth interviews, I thought, and yeah, it's, it's thanks to you, man, and, and like I said, this must feel, you know, victorious, and, and I should throw out there, by the way, that if you want to check out those old episodes, go to softrep.com slash radio. I know, like, the older episodes are not on um, iTunes or SoundCloud or any of those places anymore, but they're free now on com slash radio. But yeah, man, awesome work and what you've done. And I guess we'll recap the whole thing. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to be on. And, uh, you know, it's definitely good to have some, some positive news regarding the situation. Um, as you mentioned, two years, I've been pretty heavily involved with the story and there's a lot of content out there, which honestly kind of scares away some readers i think because there's just so much information but um i've i've done my best to try to summarize it as best i can and um it's it seems to be very well received and we're finally getting some traction with uh the brass at the pentagon and the marine corps that are uh, instead of sweeping this issue under the rug are finally doing something about it so uh did you uh I'll, if you want i can kind of recap the the general situation for those that may not be familiar with it yeah yeah why don't you go ahead and go over it real quick and then uh we can talk about how you know this latest development happened yeah um so in 2007 a a group of marine special operators they were the uh, after world war ii marshawk was or excuse me the raider battalions were um disbanded and um after being in the war on terror for several years uh, there was a need for the marines to have their own um piece of that pie, so to speak. And uh, so this was the first deployment for uh, MARSOC and Fox Company was on a patrol. Um, they were in the Body Cot district of Afghanistan, and they were hit with a complex ambush and a vehicle-borne uh, IED. And uh, they took one casualty, uh, had a, a wound to his arm. They returned fire uh, in the direction that it was coming from. They hightailed it back to their base, and by the time they got back, there were already reports on BBC that they had slaughtered uh, 19. Well, the number changed, but I think the final number was that they slaughtered 19 civilians, um, women, children, elderly. And you, you know, you can imagine the picture that they tried to paint. 
Um, so they were quickly thrown under the bus by their own command and uh, ended up going to a court of inquiry uh, where they had to fight for their for their innocence. And um, it was found in the end that not only did they not kill any civilians, but they actually showed um, sound military judgment and, and did what they were supposed to do. Um, they never dis- they never discovered bodies, blood, nothing like that. And you would imagine that if the Taliban had any had any opportunity to present video or pictures of this massacre that supposedly occurred, they would have done it. But um, after the court of inquiry, it was proven that that never happened. So um, where we're at today is that uh, after years of the commanding officer for that unit, Fred Galvin. Uh, and a Congressman Jones from North Carolina, they've been fighting to get their names cleared. Um, you know, a, a statement was made over a decade ago that these men acted appropriately. It was done on like a Friday afternoon, and uh, it basically just got buried in the stack. So most people never even heard the correction or the, the announcement that they were innocent. And so for years, this lie that they murdered civilians has just perpetuated and um to this day uh it's it's still happening i was looking at a few other news outlets that are reporting on the situation and in the comment section there are people still saying that you know they know that they murdered people and um it's it was a great victory that the office of the commandant has acknowledged that they did what they were supposed to do and and showed sound military judgment but it the battle is still going to go on for some time, I think, until we can get people educated on the situation. Yeah, I told Fred when we had him on that, you know, I had heard the rumor that was going around in the special operations community when this event actually happened, because I think I may have been in the Q course or just heading in. I'm maybe, maybe I was still in Ranger Battalion. I can't remember. But I, I remember hearing the rumor about Marsoc's first de- deployment to Afghanistan. They got... Uh, you know, and that they basically went crazy and were just like lighting up entire villages, machine gun fire and all this kind of stuff. I mean, those rumors persist. So it's important that, well, it's important that, you know, the military comes forward and corrects the record. Um, It's also important to get the word out and just tell people that, you know, this is, this was a bunch of bullshit. You know, these guys didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. Cause it's not just about their, their reputation, so to speak. It's, it's, about their lives. Like a lot of these guys have had serious damage, whether it's not being able to get jobs because the HR department will do a search for them or whatever it is. And then it comes up that they look like murderers and some of, because of the stress of this, I mean, you have to think for the first year after the incident and through the trial, these guys thought they were going to Leavenworth for the rest of their life. And, you know, you can imagine the stress and the physical toll that it took on them. Um, and even even those that stayed in the, the Marines for a little while, uh, they would go from unit to unit. And when they would get there, people were still asking them, you know, their their own peers are, are asking them how many civilians they killed. It, it's followed them around, and it's it's uh, caused a lot of issues that I can't I can't even fully understand because I've not been in their shoes. But it's tough on their families. It's tough on them. And you know, for a, an organization like the Marine Corps that supposedly prides itself on looking out for its own. They've done a pretty poor job of it up to this point, but and I don't want to give General Neller too much credit because he had a an aide write the response. I would have liked him to do it himself, but um, I'm glad that they're at least acknowledging this instead of just acting like it's 
yeah, it never happened. So why do you think the Marine Corps has been so reluctant to come forward and just say, look, we made our mistake. I mean, it's not even really a negative story here. I mean, it's actually a positive story about the Marine Corps and the Marines doing the right thing. I mean, why have they been so reluctant to come forward and be like, look, you know, our guys didn't screw up. I wish I had a good answer, but it's the Marine Corps, as you know, is a very proud organization um they think very highly of themselves i'm a former marine so i can i can uh, be blunt here but they they just don't like to admit when they've made a mistake it's not the first instance um where something has happened and it's taken years of fighting for something to get corrected uh, congressman jones also helped out with uh clearing the names of some pilots um that were their names were tarnished as a result as a result of a, an osprey crash I think it was back in 2001, and it was almost, I believe it was almost 15 years by the time they they got their names cleared. The, the crash Jeez. was blamed on these pilots, and then come to find out it was because the Marine Corps uh, fudged some paperwork and, and made these aircraft seem like they were ready to go when they weren't. So, wow. Um, part of the problem with a lot, I've had a lot of people ask me why this still matters. Like, why, why these guys are innocent. Most A lot of people know that, but why are we still fighting for this? And, um, you know, again, like I touched on, there's, there's still this stigma that follows them around that they, you know, within certain, uh, groups of people where they think that they got away with murder. Um, and then there's also the fact that they, these guys never got the recognition for what they were a part of. I mean, that if you think about when UDT became SEALs and, when uh, Delta was stood up, or you name a special unit, whenever these guys that are a part of that original group uh, and other branches, they're they're revered, you know, they're legends. And these guys did their job and did it well, but because they got a bad rap, to this day, they're still not even authorized to wear their their uh, Raider insignia. Really? And yes. So, I mean, the, the Raider insignia wasn't introduced until 2016. Right. And unless you get approval to wear it, regardless of if you were in MARSOC prior to that, if you don't have approval, you don't, you don't rate it. So that's actually the next step in kind of burying the hatchet for these guys is, you know, I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more clear response from the commandant's office saying specifically these guys did not murder any civilians. Um, you know, it, they just kind of reference the, the court of inquiry and trust that people are going to go figure it out on their own. But the next step is for uh, these these men to get their, their insignia. I mean, if you think about how important it is, a ranger having his ranger tab, Green Beret having a beret, a SEAL having his trident, it, it's a big deal. So that, that's, that's the next step. And in addition to that, Congressman Jones has, he's introduced a uh, resolution, H.res.21, if anyone wants to look it up. And uh, it's basically going to, once it gets voted through the House, uh, it'll be read into the congressional record that these men are innocent and uh, deserve to have their, their names cleared. So um, we're, this is a great victory, having this exoneration um, being stated, but it, it, the war is still going on. So, Yeah, it's great. It's just a shame that it took so long. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's sickening to think that, uh, you know, there may be other cases. I'm Actually, I'm sure there are other cases yeah, yeah. on whatever level where someone's suffering because of uh, a situation like this where um, 
you know, our, our own troops weren't given the, the trust and credit that they deserved. And, um, I mean, I've heard so many stories about guys basically getting interrogated whenever they come back from a mission. Um, you're, you're trying to do your job, and then as soon as you get back, you've got to prove that you did it honorably. It's just it doesn't make sense. It's really strange sometimes so. how the military casts a blind eye to things that have gone really wrong or to real wrongdoings, but then they try to persecute people who really haven't done anything. Um, and it, I, it's almost, I, I have to believe some sort of institutionalization that we want to go after the easy things and deal with the easy things instead of dealing with the hard things. And I, I guess it's just a lot easier to throw mud at people who really haven't done anything wrong than it is to prosecute people who have broken the law. Yeah. And, and there, there's, there's some ego involved in all of this too, at the end of the day. Like I, I wish I had more, um, I mean, there, there are some examples of it in a series that I wrote on this, uh, this Fox company story. Um, and so again, I would encourage readers to go back and read that, but there, there's a, there have definitely been some bruised egos along the way. Um, and the higher echelons of the, the Pentagon and the DOD. So I think some of that, some of those wounds, even though they're 10 years old, for these guys, they're fresh. And that's part of the reason why they don't want to acknowledge this and, and do something about it. I, I really have a so, lot of uh, respect for Congressman Walter Jones. I mean, for those who don't know his history, he was one of the biggest, I guess you would say, cheerleaders for the war in Iraq. And as the years passed, he came out and admitted he was like, I was for this war due to a lot of bad information that was given to us. And he's since been more of just an advocate for veterans issues and has talked about guys coming back to his congressional district with missing limbs. And he's like, what was this all for? So regardless of of what your feelings as the listener may be on that, I think it takes a lot of courage for you know, leaders to, for Admit political leaders to come wrong. out yeah. yeah, and say that I voted this way and I wish I wouldn't have voted this way because I think more political leaders are all about, well, this is how I voted. So wrong or right, I, I have to defend myself and like stick to my original gut feeling, even if it was incorrect. And I was given false information by people like Colin Powell. Yeah. Congressman Jones is a great man. I've, I've spoken with him a few times and he's, he's a, he's a real Southern gentleman but you know, on the surface, and he, he is at at his core too. But he's he's a very determined man, and not afraid to, like you mentioned, he's not afraid to admit when he was wrong. Um, and he holds himself to the same standard that he holds other people to. And he's got Campbell June in his district, so this case and anything affecting the Marines are very near and dear to him because it's they're they're based in his district. So um, yeah, I, I give him so much credit for how he's supported the Marsoc seven along the way. And he's still not done fighting, which is encouraging too. I was telling Jack, I got an email um, today. I think either today or yesterday from Fred Galvin saying like, thank you to all of you who supported us. Um, And I thought that was really cool. Like whether or not your articles or this radio show or podcast, whatever you want to call it, had anything to do with, this, which, you know, it, it probably didn't, I, I, unless you guys feel differently. I mean, it raised awareness in the public eye of what, what really went down. Like, I do feel like in some way we had a part in this, and it, it feels good that we were able to raise awareness for such an important issue. The same way that I felt when we had, like, Michael Behenna on, um, you know, who was in Fort Leavenworth for crimes that he, that he probably shouldn't have been put there for. And, 
you know, I, I just, I, I, it's a good feeling when you fight for an issue and finally these guys are seeing their, their due. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I, I don't take any personal credit because uh, all I can do is work with the information that I'm given. And we had, you know, declassified documents to, to prove and back us up on everything. So I was confident throughout. But um, I, I do want to give credit to SoftRep as a platform for allowing Fred Galvin and his men to have the unvarnished truth out there. Um, we didn't pull any punches and we, we pulled it like it was. And we had fact to back it up. And that did go a long way. It's it's not the the sole reason why we're where we are today, but it did help a lot because men like Congressman Jones read that, and it gave them additional information. And that's huge. Uh, I guess you could say a, a boldness almost to to keep fighting because they they found out some some new information, and um, no no doubt that it helped. So that's great. It's unfortunate to be a part of that. I uh, I definitely one of the the biggest things about the role that I'm at with soft rep has been um, the chance that I've had to, to support some of the guys in, in, in the Marine Corps specifically with recon and, and Marsoc that I looked up to uh, when I was in. So it's, it's been uh, very rewarding to do that. Yeah. We're really happy we could facilitate, uh, you know, you doing that and having Fred Gavin on the podcast and all that, you know, um, I, just one casual, I guess, offhand observation I've made from working this job for, what, five or six years now is, you know, when the media gets it wrong and they say something about the military that isn't true, it irritates people. But you know what makes r- people really angry? It's when you tell the truth. Then people get <laughs> pissed, really pissed. And Yeah, you see the true colors at that point. Yeah, yeah, you really do. And, um, you know, so telling the truth uh, isn't always an easy thing to do. And I really respect, uh, you know, you for for illuminating the situation and and Fred for not giving up on this, not giving up on his men or uh, or or himself, for that matter, you know, and continuing to fight for uh, for the integrity of his unit. And, you know, I'm very happy that, you know, we could play some small role in it. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, an honor to be a part of it. And uh, I would really encourage anyone listening or reading the, the articles to reach out to your state representatives and ask them to support House Resolution 21, um, h.res.21, and uh, encourage them to support the commandant pinning the Raider insignia on these men to bury the hatchet and, and signify their support after all of these years. Um and uh, I know that we're we're going to have a lot of faithful supporters doing that like we have for the last two years. So I, I do want to give them credit, too, because without people reading the articles and taking action, um, I know that we've gotten some bipartisan support on these matters over the years. And uh, we couldn't have done it without the, the readers. So I appreciate them, too. So for the listeners, um, Nick is not only writing for softrep.com, also writing for our other site, part of Hurricane Group, the Loadout Room, loadoutroom.com. Um, you could follow Nick on Twitter, at KaufmanNR, on Instagram, at Kaufman.Nick, which people will especially like if, uh, much like Brandon Webb, you're a watch guy, because I know that you're very big on watches, <laughs> Nick. It's Brandon's fault. <laughs> I don't know if you can compete with his watch collection, though. I uh, certainly can't compete, but <laughs> I can blame I can blame him for the addiction, and I can strive to add the collection that he has. So. 
That's awesome, man. Oh, and the other thing I was going to ask you before we let you go, because we have to get to Shannon Miller. Um, so your book, The Other Marines, I know there was like a lot of issues with the publisher, which you got into on the last episode with us. If people want to check that out. Um, but for a while, so people heard Nick's episode, uh, you know, and we're responding on Twitter and they're like, hey, Nick, I want to buy your book. But the only thing I see on Amazon is like a copy that you could buy from a third party seller for like one hundred twenty five dollars or something. <laughs> now I go to Ooh, Amazon like nine hundred something. OK, so even crazier than I thought. Yeah, way crazier. <laughs> and so now I go yeah. to Amazon and there's it's not up anywhere that, you know, it's up, but there's not even third party sellers uh, selling it. Like, do you have any plans of re-releasing it or maybe making it an no. ebook? At this point, I don't. Um, I, I actually, the reason you don't really see anything on there is because I asked him to take it down. Um, with the issues with the publisher, I just didn't want to get into any kind of complicated situation with them. And then, uh, you know, just on, on a personal level, I'm I'm happy that I was able to get my story out. And it's more important to me to keep doing my, my work for SoftRep. Um, maybe one day I'll change my mind. But for now, if anybody wants my story reach out to me and I will email you a PDF copy, no charge. Cool. There you go. That works. So yeah, hit up Nick on Twitter then at Kaufman NR. And I know there's plenty of people who do want to see it. So that's cool. That's, that's, that's really nice of you to do, man. No problem. I appreciate you helping me, uh, be able to have another platform to talk about this story. And, um, I appreciate, uh, everything you guys do for the show. For sure, man. Thanks for coming on. Same. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Jack, I appreciate it. I hope you guys have a good one. Yeah, you too, man. All right, we'll talk to you later. Yeah, before I connect with uh, Shannon, like I said, it really does remind me of the Michael Behenna thing because I booked um, Michael's mom on other shows that I worked for previously on Sirius XM. It was an issue that like meant a lot to me. I wore the wristband with his name, which, funny story, when... Um, Colonel Colonel Allen West came to Sirius. He was like, oh, nice uh, bracelet you have there. I need the same thing on. So it was, like, cool to see people fighting for this veteran and then finally seeing him free. And then for, like, Fred Galvin saying, you know, when people would Google his name, this is the first thing that would come up, war crimes. Yeah. And it's great to see that now there'll be articles like Nick's article that give the full story of what went down and that these guys are exonerated and hopefully – there'll be some total closure as he talked. And about. I believe a acquaintance and a friend of mine is working with Fred to write his book. That'll be about that'll be big, about this whole story. And it is a very, as Nick said, it's a long, complicated story. So, um, <laughs> I, I guess it's worth, it is worthy of a book and it's going to take that much. Um, it's a big enough story that it takes that much time to, you know, I think lay it all out there. Yeah, and the media guy in me feels like that will do very well and a lot of shows will be interested in having him on. Like, yeah, I could see yeah. Hannity covering that or any of those shows on that level. Uh, any, like, any major shows that give a platform to veterans like that, like Will Cal. It's a sad story, man. And it's, yeah, it is. It's really strange to think about what I, what I was saying before, how the military seems to go after people who haven't done anything wrong. But then when people really do screw up and do really bad stuff, they, like, cover that up and, like, sweep it under the carpet. It's like, can't we just flip <laughs> it around and go after the bad people and leave the good dudes alone? Yeah. Like, why Why does it? And I'm sure there, there's some bureaucratic or institutional reason why it works that way. You know, it isn't by accident. Yeah. You know? Um, 
All right, so let's get over to Shannon, and uh, we're looking forward to having her on, friend of James Powell, and uh, she's got a lot to say about North Korea and other issues going on. Joining us for the first time on Soft Rep Radio is Shannon Miller, and my, and my introduction to Shannon was that when James Powell was here, we would do the live streams when he was in studio, and, and we'd talk about North Korea, and Shannon would always be typing, uh, correcting us on things, and, and James was like, well, Shannon really knows her stuff on North Korea. <laughs> you have to have her on the show, so I'm glad we're finally doing it. Um, she's the founder and CEO of Lockdown Your Life, 10 years of experience in the security and intelligence industry as a government contractor, diplomat, trainer, and analyst. And we'll definitely talk some uh, North Korea, especially with the Olympics. But yeah, pleasure no, to have you on. Yeah, I'm really glad that we could have you on today. There's uh, North Korea has been in the news, you know, pretty much more than I've ever seen in the past since uh, since Trump came into office. And, you know, there's, of course, good reporting and bad reporting on the Kore- uh, Korean Peninsula. Um, some of the reporting is just atrocious, though, in my opinion. And I just wanted to get into it a little bit with you since you're somebody who studied the situation in depth. You know, I, I know one person, uh, a retired special forces colonel who I think really is on the ball with North Korea. Um, and you sound like somebody else who just like has a, a really in-depth understanding. So, I mean, we're always happy to have experts on the, on the program. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd say expert. I, I would say I spent some time learning the, the down and dirty of their nuclear and biochemical weapons. But, you know, my my knowledge is a few years old. So it's it's always there's always new things. There's always new developments. Yes. And there's always, you know, there's there's always going to be mixed reporting because, as you know, there's really no open reporting and no open source information on North Korea. I, it's just it's a closed state. So getting anything accurate is, is you know, tangential at best. Well, how would you summarize the North Korean threat and what that really and what it really means to South Korea, the the Pacific region, and of course to the United States, since you know we have a presence in South Korea? I'm, you know, it's complicated. It's if, if we could have solved it by now, we would have done so. You know, since the yeah. Korean War, they've had, you know, a presence, a, mil- a military theater there. You know, you have a huge uh, civilian population that lives in South Korea. You have a huge military presence. You have the demilitarized zone. So you have a lot of, you know, military power in that region. And to say that, you know, oh, let's just bomb the shit out of them, that's completely disrespecting human life. I mean, you have the threat is greater when you poke at them. Really, what you want is a power that you know and can understand because it's, you know, what he's carrying on, what Kim Jong-un is carrying on from his father is just some of the same traditions, some of the same beliefs about the world. And, you know, what does any dictator really want is is power. And the more power you give him, the more, you know, news you give him, the more presence you give him in the world, the greater he feels. So, so it's better the devil, you know. We always had a joke. It's always better the Kim Jong Il you know than the Kim Jong Il you don't. But in this case, it's Kim Jong Un now. So it's like he's a known quantity to some degree. Like, and and that's a little bit more safe and stable than somebody you don't know. You don't know what the next guy will do. That's the problem. Well, what would you say then to you know? I hear a lot of this sort of. Um, you know, Monday night quarterbacking, it sounds like you're, you're, you know, your father yelling at the television set. People are like, well, we just need to get tough with North Korea and put them in their place. And, you know, we're going to, you know, swing our, uh, swing our weight around a little bit. I mean, what do you, what would you say to this sort of like, you know, when you're out at a dinner party and you hear somebody talking like this? 
Oh, you know, I, I have to stop myself from saying too much or too little, because I think for most people, it's, it's a lack of knowledge about the region. It's a lack of knowledge about the regime. And, you know, just, I don't want to call it a dick swinging contest, but if we're going to go there, it, it is. I, I was I mean, trying to, absolutely. I was trying to avoid using that term, but that's what I, I was thinking. I noticed that with you too. You're like, we're just going to swing our weight around. around. No, it's okay. I'm, I'm okay. I'm not, I'm not easily offended, but it's, it's really like, you know, let's show our military might. They already know that we have a great military. We know we have a great military, you know, we're the world's last superpower, if you want to call us that. But, you know, North Korea is unstable. You have a regime that has no regard for anyone other than their own presence. And they, they don't care about loss of life. They don't care about civilian casualties. But you have China right next door. And the last thing they want is a nuclear war. The last thing that they want is a destabilized North Korea. Because what's that going to give you? That's going to affect millions of lives. That's going to affect your water supply, your natural resources, your, you know, and everything at the end of the day in politics and in diplomacy and is about resources and power. And it's, if you can maintain your power in a region like China does, then why would you try to destabilize what you already know is crazy? So I, I think I would, I would caveat it with those things just by, you know, keeping it very general because most people don't care about the nitty gritty. Most people don't get in the weeds about North Korea. They don't want to know because they'd rather just say, oh, we just, you know, blow the shit out of them and it'll be fine. No, it won't be fine because that's going to affect the Pacific Rim, which then affects our interests in the region. So... Well, you brought up a, a number of different things that I, I'd love to follow up on, but one of the, uh, I think the main ones that jumps out to me is the question of China. Um, and I, I want to ask you a little bit about what you think of the uh, Trump administration policy or maybe former policy. We've already moved on beyond this concept, the notion that we were going to be able to ally with China against North Korea. I, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily a lost cause. It would, it would be a good thing to do. I mm -hmm. mean, China owns most of our debt. So trying to, we're still ingratiated to China, whether we want to be or not. So, you know, they're a power in the region, they're a power in the world, they have a lot of economic pull. So it, it is in our best interest, I think, to try to ally more in a conversation with China, not forgetting that they are also a power. And they also have they tend to play the long game. They play the thousand year game. We play the one year game and you know, they've been around a long time for a reason. So you got to think about what are they thinking long-term strategically and what are we thinking long-term to strategically and where can some of the interests align without endangering a trade relationship, without endangering, you know, a separate military power and interests in the region. You've got a lot of factors playing into this. It's not simple. It's never simple. If it was simple, you know, everything would be wonderful and there would be world peace, but that isn't happening. So, yeah, I mean, that's why it's interesting to see the hysteria in the media about North Korea. When you look at the history behind it, we've been dealing with this thing since 1945. Exactly. And it's a, <laughs> and, 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 and the, the, and I've, as much as I've criticized the Trump administration, the, um, the way the press has made it seem recently, it, uh, they almost talk about it in terms like Donald Trump invented North Korea. <laughs> I mean, as much as I, I criticize the administration, I mean, I don't think we can blame that one on him. No, I mean, any president is going to inherit the issue of North Korea, the issue of China, the issue of Russia. These, these are not new problems. They're just more of the same. You know, government is cyclical. Things swing one way really extreme, and then they swing back the other way. There's no, never any new ideas. It's just more of the same kind of, you know, it just takes time. 
Do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between how South Korea regards the North Korean threat and how America regards it? Because I, I was over in Seoul like maybe eight months ago now, and I was just really struck by how if you watched the American news, they would make it seem like war is imminent with North Korea. Like this is serious stuff, people. You know, it's going to pop off any moment. But then if you're in Seoul, I mean, it was like hipster college kids playing the acoustic guitar <laughs> and sipping on beer at the at the beer garden. I mean, no one cared. You know, South Korea has lived for so long next door to a nuclear power. It's, it's kind of like and we have Canada living next door to us. So, it's you know, it's, it's their neighbor. And a lot of South Koreans have family in North Korea and vice versa. So they think of it more as a, this is the person, this is, you know, the grumpy neighbor we don't want to upset necessarily. So we're just going to kind of, the status quo is okay. Um, I think American media in general tends to blow everything out of proportion. If you go anywhere in the world, you watch BBC World News. If you get anywhere outside the United States, you'll find there's a lot of other things going on in the world, not just what we choose to show people. So, you know, in, in South Korea, it's just, it's kind of... Their approach right now is, well, we're just going to leave America out of the conversation and we're going to engage with North Korea directly as we should have done and keep that conversation going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's about the reunification of the Korean peninsula. Uh, well, we hope at some point in the future. One can hope. I mean, it's again, you have to look at what does Kim Jong-un want in the long run? You know, what is he, what is he really after? Like, is he wanting reunification? Is he seeking just to be the most powerful man in the world or his own perception of the world? I mean, we can all manufacture great things. It's amazing what you can do with it. Well, 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 how, how would you assess that? What do you think his, his end game is? You know, with any person like him, and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, armchair psychoanalyze him because I don't know him. I don't know anyone who knows him personally. So I, I will say just based on what I'm seeing is you have somebody who is narcissistic and, and that word is thrown around so casually. But in this case, you have somebody who is very power hungry, who is greedy beyond measure, who likes to be seen as a great man, a great leader, that he requires people to fall in line with his belief system. So you give anyone that amount of power and there's there's no no, no idea what they're capable of until they do it. So, you know, he's threatening nuclear war. I don't think he ne necessarily wants to do that because maybe he is looking long-term. He's like, well, if I do this, bad things could happen. And, you know, but again, like maybe he has an escape plan. That's entirely possible. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think you just have to kind of look at, he hasn't done it yet. It doesn't mean, I think he wants the power of the nuclear weapons. I don't necessarily think he wants to go off half-cocked and use them. Is I think it, inciting him is not a good idea, but... Is it an oversimplification to say that he's just crazy? Because we've talked about this on the show before, and, like, Jack, you've given your opinion say, and have said he's not crazy, North Korea is not crazy, they're looking out for their interests like every other country, but that seems to be the uh, the dialogue that we hear in the media, is just he's a crazy person. I, I don't think anyone would be able to hold complete control of a people and, and a country if he was completely crazy. I, I think that he's very strategic. I think that he's very careful about crafting his image. He shows you what he wants you to see. And the rest of it is held together with duct tape and string. You know, it's, it's that's always been the state of the nuclear weapons program there. It's, it's not necessarily the current state. It isn't. They are getting technology somehow. And that's a different question to be asking. But um, you know, I don't think anybody would be holding power as long as his family has if he wasn't prepared to do a lot of 
truly heinous things, but I don't believe that nuclear war is necessarily the answer he's seeking. I think he just likes to throw his weight around more than anything. Yeah, and I mean, I think I've said in the past, too, is a nation cannot pursue a highly scientific endeavor like building a nuclear weapon and be fundamentally irrational. The two things exactly. just, they, they don't make sense. You know, and I would say the same thing about Iran. You, mm-hmm. They can't be an irrational actor if they're coming close to building a nuclear weapon. It doesn't make any sense. That, but right. what, what makes people say that, though, and I was just thinking about it as I'm writing it down, um, you know, like the capturing of Kenneth Bay, you know, him killing his own family members, people on the outside see this and they go, this is crazy. Well, like, what does that strategically prove? You want to go well, ahead, Shannon? <laughs> I, I can I can speak to some of that. I would say that I, I would say he's willing to do almost anything. Um, you know, one or two lives and sacrifice to the greater good is, I think, how he rationalizes it. Everyone rationalizes differently, but it may be in his mind. And this is me speculating, but you know, maybe in his mind, sacrificing the family of one defector is okay to prove a point. Instead of sacrificing millions, you're sacrificing a few. Yes. Like he has proven that he will murder your entire family if you defect. That's, that's the risk that you run. If you leave, you know exactly what's going to happen to your family. You will never see them again. They're, they're gone. I think he also has an interest in portraying himself as being crazy and irrational because that means that the international community will perceive North Korea is potentially doing anything. It means that everything is on the table on any given day. And that, that would, that would give him a lot more maneuverability, I think on a, on a short term. Yeah. I mean, I, like I said, I, his long-term strategic plan is, is probably limited to a close group of people who know what he's thinking, but you know, in terms of how he's perceived in the world, you know, it's, it's all about perception. He, he was a reality star before Trump was a reality star. Let's be real. He's been raised in that way his whole life. You know, he's been in the spotlight with his family who, you know, has run Korea since the Korean war. So really you've got, you've got a man who was raised a certain way and this is how he saw the world. This is how his grandfather ran the country. This is how his father ran the country. This is how you know, his uncle taught him to run the country. So really you have a guy that doesn't know anything else. This is, this is how he thinks the world should run. Well, interestingly, allegedly, at least he spent a portion of his childhood in Switzerland. Mm, that wouldn't be too surprising. I mean, given that they're the only country with diplomatic relations, but I mean, one of the yeah. few besides China. I mean, yeah, it's possible. Do you, do you have any hope then for the, the, Perhaps uh, a character like Kim Jong-un would move to North Korea, not not necessarily towards democratization. That might be too strong and too naive, but towards, um, I don't know, finding some sort of equilibrium to finding some sort of lasting peace with the South. I think you again have to look at, is it in his best interest? Is it in the best interest of, you know, what does it serve? What purpose would it serve him? And, you know, maybe it would give him goodwill in the world. Um, you know, he likes to be seen as benevolent in some ways. Like he wants to be seen both as, you know, terrifying and as benevolent. You know, for example, when a U.S. citizen crosses the border and they, they arrest them, you know, that's a that's leverage in the international community that gives him something to hold over other countries to say, hey, let me negotiate. Let's talk about this. You know, for him he's looking for leverage points. So if he can be seen having cooperation with South Korea for the games and having conversation and sending high level diplomats, maybe that's going to show the world that, you know, I have a little bit more than just nuclear weapons. I'm also, you know, powerful and can help control 
diplomacy. So, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag with him. It, again, it goes to his long-term strategic interests, but I don't think he's looking to lose power in the region. I think maybe if he, if he looks like he's working towards reunification, it will look like he has more power. So that's also a possibility. How has the uh, nuclear threat kind of changed the security dynamics on the Korean Peninsula? What, what are the things we need to consider now? I, you know, it's, it's a hard question because not having anyone on the ground in country is probably one of the scariest prospects when you're dealing with a nuclear state, not understanding where they're getting the technology or not being able to specifically verify from multiple sources that you have. Um, the technology to produce, you know, multiple small warheads, because the estimates from, you know, U.S. and um, is that they can manufacture up to 60 nuclear, like small warhead nuclear weapons. And international investigators are saying, you know, like IAEA is saying they can only manufacture six. So six and 60 is very different. Yeah. And it, it sounds um, it sounds like the run up to the Iraq war where we're talking about aluminum tubing. I mean, who's right? Who's wrong? <laughs> well, in six and 60, you've got, that's two very large, right. one's very large, one is very small. And you have the international community saying they're not as big of a threat as you think they are. And then you have us saying, well, they are as big of a threat. Any nuclear state is a threat. You also have Pakistan. You also have India. They have nuclear weapons and let's not get started on Kashmir. So you know, it's not like you just have one nuclear power in the region. You have multiple, but they're probably the most unstable. Yeah. Yeah. And probably the most prone to use them if things really mm -hmm. got dicey. Yeah. They've shown that. How about the, um, the Olympics? They just kicked off, didn't they? They did today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the last time they had the Olympics in South Korea was 1988, I believe. Wasn't 88 Calgary? Am I wrong? I, I could Google Winter it. Olympics? <laughs> Winter Olympics. We did. was Calgary. Let's I see. Remember. Yeah, I don't know. I'll have to look this up. Uh, 1988. Okay. It was in Seoul. There we go. Okay. All right, so 88, and now here we are, uh, 2018. 30 years later. Yeah, well, I, I bring up, well, 88 is interesting because we stood up a lot of um, South Korean counterterrorism units and had mm -hmm. our SF guys over there train them up to um, because there's a, a fear that North Korea would um, would instigate an attack and try to disrupt the Olympics. Mm -hmm. um, and Shannon, since we have you here, I mean, what do you make of uh, a, a potential North Korean threat to the Olympics this year? They they're sending 200 and, that's it, 229 right. that's people. A big change from the last. It's a Olympics. big that's a that's a big group of people from North Korea. Now, mind you, like 220 of those are what they call cheerleaders, and I don't know what that means. But <laughs> yeah. no, I'm not even kidding. I was I was reading the stats this morning. I was like cheerleaders. What does that mean? Like 21 are journalists. There's anyway. You get. I think Daniel Vizier did an article on that too. Yeah. <laughs> cheerleaders. Good to know. I didn't know we had that option, but um, <laughs> I honestly think that they're they're not going to overtly do anything. I I don't think they're going to like be like, hey, let's fire a test missile during the Olympics. I really don't think that they're that is their intent. They're sending their head of state, which has never been done before, to South Korea for this you know this envoy. So the fact that they're sending somebody so high profile that is they're considered their foreign head of state it, ahead of the Olympics is a big deal. It's sending, it's sending a message, isn't it? It is. It absolutely is that, you know, they're looking for some sort of conversation dialogue with South Korea. So whether it's an olive branch or whether it's a lead branch, we won't find out for a while, but, um, 
you know, that number of people coming into the country from North Korea is almost unheard of. And to go freely across the border, most of them went across the border and then the rest were flown in. So you have that's a huge presence for North Korea and South Korea. So the likelihood of something happening, I mean, I can only speculate, but I, I wouldn't think that they would outwardly do anything. Yeah, uh, Shannon, did you by any chance see that piece that well, went around, I mean, of what happened with Wester Holt from NBC was apparently duped by a North Korean uh, tra- <laughs> I did. I training camp really for the funny. Olympics. Well, what, what happened? Lester Holt went to what he was told was a North Korea uh, Olympic training camp and, like, reported on it that that's what it was. And, and yeah, apparently it was a big setup, right? Yes. Yep. I they, wanted to hear your they, take on that. They basically set up a whole it, it was basically like a, a backdrop so that the NBC reporter coming in and filming everything would think that they were at a, a you know, North Korean skiing uh, training Olympic training ground. The fact is, all of them were, you know, North Koreans coming down the slope. Sure. But it was all set up. It was it was all staged. Everything was staged to make it look like they were actually, you know, training for the Olympics. So. Um, I, I think that's, I think it's pretty funny. I, the well, fact how, that he didn't even think about that or notice it, I'm like, yeah, but. How I do mean, they train for the Olympics things. then though, if they, if they don't have these facilities? Um, they don't have skiers that I know of. They oh, have, okay. a, they have an ice hockey, women's ice hockey and they have figure skaters, but they don't, I don't think they have anybody that's skiing. Um, I don't think they have any ski athletes, but I know they have the figure skating. Uh, they have a pairs figure skating couple, and then they have 12 women on the ice hockey team. Yeah, I think a lot of people were just not surprised by NBC getting duped, not doing their no. due diligence. Pulling a well, Brian Williams. It's very controlled <laughs> when you go into the country, though. So, it, you know, they, they have you with your, your – you have a minder, what they call minders. I mean, Iranians have this too, but um, – you know, you're escorted by somebody wherever you go, you're only seeing what they want you to see. So yep. if you're not aware or if you're not educated on it, I don't know how much Lester Holt knows about North Korea. I know, I don't know him. I don't, you know, I don't know what they told him, but I would have just assumed that everything was fake, but that's me. Yeah. No, of course it should be the assumption when you go in there. I mean, some of the footage that, uh, that comes out of Pyongyang is, uh, haunting really. It is. Yeah, this, the subway system and the streets and like how like it's it just empty and quiet it is, mm-hmm. you know, and when what you do see is like you see, you know, well-fed troops and everybody looks, you know, spick and span and all proper and everything. And then you go anywhere into the countryside and people are starving. I mention it all the time on the show and people are probably tired of me mentioning it. But the Dennis Rodman documentary, The Big Bang in Pyongyang, is like a good look into how staged the stuff is. I mean, of course, Dennis yeah. Rodman is looking at all this. And, and first of all, he's drunk off his head. So he, <laughs> he just he believes everything that he sees. But like I thought one of the most eye opening moments was where they the American media with Dennis Rodman interviewed all the North Korean players uh, that they were playing in the basketball team. And they asked, like, how they felt about this event of, of former NBA players playing in this big game against them that Kim Jong-un would be watching. And all of the North Korean players gave pretty much the exact same response, which seemed 
very scripted. We love great leader. We love great leader. Yeah, it was pretty. There was except <laughs> there was one great, guy yeah. who went off script on the basketball team though, and he was like, "Yeah, I wasn't that impressed with the NBA players. I thought that they were gonna, you know, be more hands on with us." And so that was kind of surprising. If you haven't watched the documentary, but yeah, there's one guy who went completely off script, and you start to think, like, what do they do to this guy? <laughs> You're taking your life into your hands, brother. Yeah. He's now in a, you know, he's, he's now breaking rocks in a jail camp. Yeah, he's in a prison camp. My favorite sure. part of the documentary still, though, is where Dennis Rodman, during whatever it is, halftime, goes down and sings happy birthday to you to Kim Jong-un. Good Lord. Lord. And yeah. Have you ever seen that? No, no, I haven't. I, I feel like i got to pull it up now. Yeah, so he sings happy birthday to him. And the people, what's what's the most interesting thing about it is that the crowd, you, they're North Koreans. This is their first mm-hmm. time ever hearing this song. Right. They, they probably want to sing along because they want to look, you know, that they're into it for the leader. Mm-hmm. But they've never heard this song in their life. So they're just clapping to it. And it's... it's uh, it's, uh, well, this whole thing reminds me of now how uh, Fred Durst has been, like, invited yes. to Crimea. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Uh, we, we live in I, strange times. We really do. I mean, when Dennis Rodman is now your ambassador from the U.S. to North Korea, we have a problem. <laughs> Kim Jong-il and now Kim Jong-un, I mean, they, they come across, not to make light of it, but, I mean, they come across to these, like, lonely, isolated leaders. And, you know, maybe if, like, Obama or Trump went over there and, like, watched a ball game with them and they had, you know, a glass of Johnny Walker together, like, <laughs> make them feel good, you know, hey, you can be part of the team, too. Welcome to the international community. You guys want to hear uh, Dennis Rodman singing Happy Birthday? Yes. Yes. I, mean, I, I, I would pull it up here. Happy birthday to you. Oh, my God. I, this must be from a different angle, but yeah, the uh, the camera in the film does zoom in on Kim Jong-un, and I think he bows to him. That's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen. Oh, watch the documentary. There's a lot of weird moments. There's, uh, you know, he has, Kim Jong-un has, like, all, the, probably the best talent of North Korea there to impress Dennis Rodman for some reason. So he has some big fancy dinner for him and, and his whole crew and has, you know, these talented singers singing to Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman the whole time is drunk, like grabs the microphone <laughs> from one of these girls, starts singing sublime Santeria horribly. Oh, uh, and he's just out of control throughout the whole trip. The oh, I got to pull up this, though. I've mentioned this documentary so many times on the show. I know you guys hate me for it, but it's, it really is interesting if you've never seen it. But like, yeah, the, hold, I got serious questions to ask here, Ian. Like, <laughs> how dare you? He's like, no. Watch Dennis Rodman. <laughs> this part, though, I did pull up this other part. So, uh, to give you some backstory, just on this one clip, um, there, the, you know, they're going to appear on CNN, and all the other NBA players got together without Dennis Rodman because he's out of control. This whole clip, and they were like, "Look, we're going to go on CNN. We're going to be interviewed by Chris Cuomo. Anytime anything political comes up, we're just going to say, like, hey, we're here to play a game. We're here right. to unite the world through basketball.'" And we're not here to do anything political. And Dennis Rodman, of course, cannot keep his mouth shut. 
So, you know, like, this is a great quip from uh, that interview. relationship with this man, you've said it many times, we've seen it demonstrated yes. for whatever reason. Yes. Are you and going you can to see how mad the NBA players If you look. get it, right. to speak up for the family of Kenneth Bay and to say, let us know why this man is being held, that this is wrong, that he is sick. If you can help, Dennis, will you take the opportunity? The one thing about politics, Kenneth Bay did one thing. If you understand, I got a guy. If you understand what Kid and Bay did, yeah. do you understand what he did? What did he do? You in tell this me. Country? You tell me, what did he do? And, and no, 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 you tell me. You tell me. Why is he held captive? They haven't released any country? charges. They haven't Why? released, they haven't released I, any I, reason. I would love to speak on this. Go ahead. You know, you got. You got, you, got, you got 10 guys here, 10 guys here that have left their families, left their damn families to help this country as, as a sports venture. Got 10 guys, all these guys here. Do anyone understand that? We do, and we appreciate Christmas. that, and we wish them yeah, well with so cultural right. exchange. No, 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 I'm just saying, no, I don't give a what the, I'm gonna ask what the hell you think. I'm saying to you, look at these guys here. This look is like Tom Cruise talking about Scientology. It's, it's amazing. And then so after the interview happens, all of these guys are like, what are we going to do? And they watch the interview back, and they're just trying so hard with the damage Keep control. a straight face. Yeah, and they're like, I, th I think the interview is about a 9 out of 10, you know, other than Dennis interrupting at that one part. I think we did a really good job. <laughs> and it's, you know, he ambush clearly ambushed the entire interview for them. Oh, Shannon, let's uh, get your, 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 well, while we're on that subject, I mean, what, what do you, what do you think of Dennis Rodman going over there? Like, what's that all about? Is it just two egomaniacs feeding each other? Probably. I'm, you know, I know Dennis Rodman has significant alcohol and drug abuse issues and, and that's been very public. Could be, could be. You know, available. I mean, obviously he's imbibed when he's talking in this interview. It's just, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very apparent that he's on something. I don't know if it's just high on life or high on something else, but he, you know, he's a very colorful character, let's say. And, um, I, I think he, he finds value in doing extreme things. He always has. It's always been yeah. kind of his public persona. And I feel like, you know, his relationship with Kim Jong-un is more one of convenience. It's like you're, he pays him to come visit. So it's, it's not as if it's a equal exchange. It's like he can afford to pay him to make an appearance in his country. A lot of Eastern Bloc countries do that to get big singers to come in for their birthday. So it's the same principle. He pays Dennis Rodman to show up and be his friend. So. And it's a little propaganda victory, I guess. Exactly. For him. Yep. Oh, look, this American came of his own free will. And he's here, and look, they did a documentary. We let them have cameras. Well, you know, yeah, we paid him. He'll uh, say whatever you want him to say. Uh, switching gears a little bit on something a little bit more important, I think. Um, <laughs> the, um, no, Dennis Rodman is important. Come on now. <laughs> <laughs> if there, there's a, a military action aside, there's the potential that the North Korean state could completely collapse, could implode, um, that the family dynasty could fall apart, someone could be assassinated. Um, who knows what could happen? All kinds of bad things could go go wrong. And if the country implodes, um, and let's say the Korean Peninsula is then unif reunified without warning, um, without any precursors, 
I mean, it's something that it could potentially happen tomorrow. And I mean, what should we be doing, both America and South Korea or other regional partners, what should we be doing to prepare for that eventuality? You know, it's it's complicated when you come from a, a closed state like North Korea. You have generations of people that have no idea about the outside world. I mean, they have limited access to Western, you know, media shows. And have been uh, traumatized for generations. So, yeah. So this is not just like the, the younger generation tends to be a little bit more savvy about technology and underground radio and, and podcast. Believe it or not, they actually can get that. It just depends on where they get it. You know, dark web stuff. Makes you wonder, is, are there people in North Korea listening to the, Stop Rep Radio? Is it possible? <laughs> there, are, there are people in North Korea, especially the younger generation who's being raised to, you know, learn hacking skills, learn their way around the dark web, the deep web, things like that. You know, they're one of the, the best cybersecurity groups in the world, comes out of North Korea. So, you know, there, but there is that generational divide you've got. If, if you're going to have a reunification of the Korean peninsula, you're talking about, you know, integration of people who've never known a life different than North Korea. And they all they've known is, you know, hunger, poverty, um, not having enough, not seeing their families, um, not knowing how to have a job or education, or only what they're allowed to have, what he says they can have. So, you know, you're looking at millions of people that would need training, education, uh, nutrition. I mean, the guy who crossed the border, the demilitarized zone a couple months ago, yeah. got shot by the North Korean yeah. troops. You know, they found parasites in his stomach. Yeah, he was a, he was that. a Korean soldier. So you, you're dealing with health issues. I mean, you're, you're looking at, I don't want to say you'd have to quarantine a little bit, but you'd have to control whatever is coming in from the country, whether it's, you know, food resources, whatever's going between the borders. You're looking you could be looking at a potential medical crisis. I, I heard different reasons for why there were parasites in his stomach, like stuff about um, the fertilizer. Do, do you know, like the real reason he had parasites? I, I don't. honestly. I, I imagine um, at the end of the day, it's poverty. Yes. I mean, lack of nutri- lack of good nutrition, lack of Health availability standards, of medication. Yeah. I mean, they just they with basic medical care. They just don't have the resources. They don't have the medication. They don't have any of the technology to manufacture it in country. But I just mean like th- there's homeless people here in the streets in New York City who have probably been homeless for dec- for you know decades, never have seen a, a doctor in years. I doubt you would find parasites in them. Exactly. Uh, or even our homeless. Know have first world problems compared to North Korea. True, true. So, I mean, what, what should we do to get ready just in case this does happen, this eventuality takes place? Or even, even if, uh, you know, we do end up going to war and the peninsula becomes unified that way, uh, what, what should we do to prepare for these? You know, I think North Korea, off the top of my head, I believe the population is somewhere around 5 million. I think South Korea is like 25 million. I it would just I can just foresee this sort of catastrophic situation uh, unfolding from a humanitarian standpoint. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about North Korea as already being in humanitarian crisis, then at least you can bring in the type of aid that they need to reunify the peninsula. You'd, you'd be looking at you know aid organizations having to do it do an assessment. Um, you know, just like going in after a, any sort of natural disaster, you kind of just have to assess what you're looking at. What What is the most immediate need? Food, water, shelter. You know, do they have those things? Do they have, you know, basic access to medical care? Do they have access to uh, food, water, shelter? Those are the three things that you start with. And then you go on the hierarchy of needs. You go up from there, whether it's, you know, education or training or, you know, reintegration with families. That's 
that's going to be a huge issue too, because, you know, some of these people have been separated for five decades. So you've got, you've got that issue, but you've also got the broader issue of, you know, Asia and Southeast Asia, where they've never known a world within a united Korea. No one really, most people don't remember it unless they're, you know, pre world war two and most of them are dying off. So, you know, you don't have that institutional knowledge of how do we deal with a united Korean peninsula, because that's going to shift the balance of power. You know, that makes South Korea more powerful in the region as well. So is that a threat to China? You know, then you're starting to think, what does that mean for China's interest in Korea and South Korea? You know, what does that do to the balance of power for the United States, who has a huge presence in South Korea and bases and troops and civilians? So you, you're looking at resources, you're looking at redistribution of, you know, natural resources and military power in the region. So I think it's broad spectrum. You're going to have to talk, you're going to be talking diplomatic relations are going to have to be established. You're going to be doing, um, you know, probably Red Cross and aid organizations are going to have to come in. So it's it's not going to just be the U.S.'s problem. It's going to be China's problem. It's going to be Japan's problem. It's going to be South Korea's problem. So there's a lot of nations with interests in that area. So, I, Secretary Mattis has been pretty blunt in some of his statements about North Korea, saying that if it came to war, it would be worse than anything we can imagine. Anything worse than anything we've seen in our generation. How would you see things unfolding if it did turn to a shooting war? Well, I mean, I guess it's going to who's going to pull the trigger first and who's going to, you know, it it are they willing to go there? Are they willing to say we are prepared to lose everything? Like th- what people don't understand about war. I'm sure you guys appreciate it far more than than most, I would say, because you've actually been to war. But I, I um, haven't, to be fair. There's a lot of people, that, there's lot of people that don't understand war and what that means and what that looks like. And if we go nuclear, if that is the option, if you go full nuclear with North Korea, your world, everyone's world is going to change. Everything will change. Well, I mean, what benefit would North Korea have, though, to go get into a nuclear war? I mean, self-preservation if we invaded. I I can't even, like, makes my head explode just thinking about it. Because the thought that a nation would be willing to sacrifice an entire civilian population or, you know, three-quarters of China will be affected. The United States will be affected. So, if their bomb is as powerful as they're claiming, you know, the damage that it could do not just to, you know, climate change and to countries and nations and water supplies and natural resources, you're looking at a whole generation dealing with the fallout from radiation. So I don't see that that will be the case. You know, I think they'd probably go biochemical weapons before they would go nuclear. And those can be more damaging long term. You know, just what are they willing to do? Are they willing to do with what's happening in Syria? Are they willing to go chemical warfare, you know, before they step up to nuclear? Because then you're going to be dealing with, you know, more pocketed regions of biochemical weapons, but you'll still have damage. Yeah, the question of norms comes up, and it's interesting that you mention Syria, and and that has kind of upset international norms that they have deployed uh, mm-hmm. chemical weapons both it appears from the best we know that both the regime and uh, isis have both used chemical weapons at various points mm-hmm. and what do you think of that some of the argument um that the united states has set a norm in um how we pursue regime change 
you know, the point has been made um, by others. Uh, I don't know how much I buy into it, but the point has been made that because we removed Gaddafi, you know, Gaddafi gave up his weapons of mass destruction and then we were able to remove him. Um, and if he had pursued, you know, weapons of mass destruction, certainly if he had a nuclear device, it would have been much, much harder to dislodge him from Libya. And the and the argument goes, at least, that people like Kim Jong-un see that and it incentivizes them to um, build up their WMD stockpile. I think they want to be valued as a superpower. I think that's how they want to be perceived in the world. And they believe that having chemical and or nuclear weapons means that they have authority, means that they are right. equal to the nations that have nuclear weapons. And, I, you know, I I don't know that it's an easy question to answer because when you start talking about the use of chemical weapons and the use of nuclear weapons, it's like, how far will they go to get what they want? And why would they go that far? You know, and the way that we chose to take out Gaddafi and that whole, you know, regime change. You know, like, <laughs> look at Libya now. I mean, it's I, a mess. Yeah, it, it's a mess. It's 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 always easier to deal. Like I said, with with the evil that you know than the evil that you don't. It's like just assuming that we can go in and take over a country or go to war with a country because our interests are there. That's that's short sighted. It's you've got to be looking long-term, not just short-term. And it's like, we've gotten ourselves into Afghanistan. We've gotten ourselves into Iraq and we are spread so thin and we've been there for 16 years. And for what, you know, I understand like the noble purpose of it, but at the end of the day, is it still a value? Is it still important? Is it still, there's a lot of other interests in the world to be thinking about, not just Afghanistan, not just Syria, not just Iraq. You know, we've gone into a region that was doing fine without us. I mean, they, they have their own problems and they've been handling them their own way for generations. And suddenly we show up and it's like, okay, but, and then what? So it's like with North Korea, we have a vested interest because we have South Korea, because we have a military presence in the region and we can't just pull out. People are like, well, why don't we just pull everything out of South Korea? I was like, do you know how many people are in South Korea? We have, you know, half a million civilians and military personnel with families in South Korea. Well, so, and that is that is part of the long-term strategic vision of China is to completely squeeze us out of the Pacific. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would love it if we left South Korea. <laughs> and we just expanded the bases in South Korea, which most people don't know. They're like, oh, really? I'm like, yes. Did you not pay attention? <laughs> yeah, the, the one in Seoul has caused a lot of consternation because, um, you know, when we built it, Seoul was nothing like it is today. I, I think... I think we had like a little golf course out there and now it's in like downtown Seoul. It's like straight up yeah. metropolis and it causes some problems because this South Korean people are like, why do the Americans have this big base here? Well, it wasn't a city when we built it. Exactly. We have long-term interests in the region. That's the bottom line is like, you know, we're, we thought long-term about the Pacific Rim. We thought long-term about, okay, we have interests in, you know, in South Korea, we have interest in the Pacific Rim countries. You know, that's part of our long-term planning. Well, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria were not part of the long-term strategic plan, obviously. Yeah. So I, they're like, okay, this, you know, 9-11 happened. I get it. It was, we reacted in the moment and now, but again, you know, we're 16, 17 years out now. So now what? Yeah. What's it doing? What's it doing for us? How's it, is it making the world more stable or less? Hard, it, if we had that answer, we wouldn't. We wouldn't be there. Yeah. 
Back, back to the nuclear war stuff, I just wanted to hear your take because, as we know, the Internet freaks out when they see this type of thing. What's your take on the whole, you know, Trump tweeting out, Kim Jong-un has a nuclear button, but mine is much bigger. Like, do you think that this is a major problem when you have the leader of the free world tweeting out this stuff? I, I think that somebody needs to take his phone away, is what I think. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's the reality. It's like you're, you're trying to he, – he's armchair quarterbacking on Twitter. And I, from what I've seen in terms of when he tweets policies out via Twitter, well, you cannot make policy decisions on Twitter. That's not how the system works. And thankfully, we have a, a government set up with checks and balances and different powers and different branches for a reason so that – you know, when something is tweeted, that does not make it law, that does not make it policy, that does not make it an executive order. So, you know, I, it's, 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 I kind of choose to just ignore most of what he says and I ignore most of his tweets because I, you know, one, it's very maddening and frustrating and I want to say wrong things about him, but I don't. <laughs> and that, But that is truly what he's doing is making policy on Twitter because it, we reported on this on SoftRep. I think we reposted something from maybe Business Insider. But when he tweeted out the thing about the transgender ban in the military reinstating it, apparently Mattis came out and said, like, you yeah. didn't consult with me on this. And, the, and they, it's not policy. And the Department of Defense responded and said, until we get a, mem a memo, until we get, you know, something in writing that says that this has to be put into place, we're not doing anything. You know, and it's Twitter one of those things policy. where I know people will listen to this and be like, oh, why are you guys being hard on Trump? But it, it truly is an unprecedented thing. There was never a time that Barack Obama tweeted out that this is what the policy is before ever, you know, set, before ever coming to Congress and meeting with his staff and actually creating a policy. And then all your bureaucrats are like, what's going on? What yeah. am I supposed to do? I think it's very reactive. Twitter is very reactive. They respond to everything and everything is in the moment. And it's, we've never been in a generation where social media had so much influence on politics and the political conversation and the democratic conversation. So, and I'm not saying Republican Democrat here, I'm saying democracy, sure. you know, this kind of conversation that we're having, we've never done this before. So we're going to make mistakes. And I think you know, for both politicians and, you know, people in Congress and people in the intel community, you know, it's a very, it's complex and it's layered and there's always more that meets the eye. And I think what Trump does is a disservice to the people that work for him. It's a disservice to the intel community. It's a disservice to Congress to not at least consult and listen to the people, the policy advisors, the people that know what they're talking about, the subject matter experts, bring in those people. They're there for a reason. They're at your disposal. You know, instead of being reactive, try, you know, like, again, with the dick measuring, it's like, stop, <laughs> you know, like, who cares about the size of your button? I don't give a shit. I just don't want to go to war. Like, you're talking about millions of people's lives, yeah. and you're doing it with just no regard. Yeah. And, and this is not a diss on Trump. It's just I would hate anybody doing that. It's, <laughs> like, really, it's really frustrating to deal with that kind of like Joe the Plumber logic. Like, oh, Trump's right. just being honest. He's just telling it like it is. No, He's just saying not. how he feels. It's, and it's like, well, no, this, this, is, is. this isn't okay. It isn't. Um, and, you know, I, I deal with the same thing with, you know, my peer group. A lot of veterans out there, they have this attitude that if we just kill more people, it'll resolve all of our foreign policy issues. Like, oh, we're, we're, we're losing we're losing in Afghanistan. Let's kill more people. If the politicians would just let us take off the leash and kill people, it would solve the problem. Well, yeah, that we've been doing that for 16 years, regardless of the politicians. And it's not working. But I think that, you know, 
for us, you know, if you're a, a combat veteran, everything looks like war to you. Um, mm-hmm. That's how you resolve problems. And it's kind of a, for sadly for a lot of us, quite frankly, I think it's our only continued relevancy in life is to mm-hmm. kind of advocate for war. Um, or, to, or to see every sort of foreign policy dilemma as something that can be resolved with military force. Um, and that's disconcerting to see. Uh, the, the, the issues, the problems that that can lead to are pretty evident, I think. Yep. It's, it, the thing with foreign policy is that people assume that you know, just sending troops is foreign policy. Well, troops are a very small part of what diplomats actually do. And I've worked with many of them and I know many that are still serving overseas and, you know, it's both military, civilian and diplomatic corps. And you're dealing with people who are trained in issues of the countries that they're going to. They speak the languages, they're helping American citizens abroad. You know, our presence and our foreign policy is so important. It's so important to maintain our presence in the countries abroad. Like most people think, oh, foreign policy, you're just, you know, dealing with heads of state. No, you're working at a desk level with with your compatriots in that country to establish policies to help spread American politics, American democracy abroad. And you're also doing American citizen services. You know, you travel anywhere in the world. Something bad happens to you. You get arrested. Something, you know, you end up with drugs in your bag. That does happen in Thailand, apparently. But, you know, you something happens to you and you lose your passport. Where are you going to go? You're going to go to the consulate. You're going to go to the embassy. You're going to go ask a diplomat to help you. So foreign policy extends far beyond just American citizen services. It, it goes to business entities. It goes to trade agreements. It goes to, um, you know, government relations between countries. It's how things are done. It's how we get people back from North Korea when they're arrested. All of those things are a part of what we would call U.S. national security. I mean, there's a there's a blending of them. You have a uh, international trade agreement and that has economic uh, repercussions, but it also binds countries together politically. Exactly. And that creates political alliances, you know, and, and all the foreign policy, not just military. All, right? all of the uh, the the anger we saw during the campaign about NATO and oh, and there, there's countries that aren't paying their NATO commitments. We should withdraw from NATO. And we're making these very reckless statements or the, you know, the uh, nominee at the time, Trump, uh, before he became president, was making these very reckless statements at a time when Russia was being very aggressive, expanding their territory in Ukraine. And, you know, at the end of the day, an organization like NATO isn't something that we're a part of just because we're a nice country and we're nice to people. It's because Europe went to war with itself twice in one century and they almost destroyed themselves in the world. And NATO is an alliance that binds these countries together. And it means Americans don't have to die on French beaches anymore because we, we've re-engineered the politics. Exactly. I mean, we could be looking at World War Three if we really wanted to say it that way, but... You know, we we would hope that these sort of alliances, these economic and political alliances that have been created over the decades would mean that we have partnerships with other nations and that we would be free trading and that we would be having engagement. We would be able to have the South Korean Winter Games. That is done through diplomacy. That is done through foreign policy. That is done through, you know, government entities meeting in a room and saying, this is what we've agreed upon. Yeah, it involves, you know, the International Olympics Committee, but it also involved politics and government. So you're not just looking at one thing of being the leverage for foreign policy. It's not just military. It's a lot of other components that come together. 
So yeah, and I mean, having traveled abroad, and I know you have, you know, probably seen some of the same things I've seen, but. I mean, going overseas and meeting with our partners in countries like the Philippines and I mean, just the importance of these alliances and that these people are able to do things that we could never do um, the way they're able, you know, they're fighting battles um, in their home countries, fighting international terrorism in many cases so that we don't have to, you know, send troops the way we have in Afghanistan or Iraq. I mean, they're doing the job fighting their fight Um, and we don't have to go over there and do that. And I mean, I think that's a great thing. It is a great thing. I mean, the ability that we have to train and provide, you know, whether it's counterterrorism training or whether it's, you know, intelligence training or whether it's, um, you know, military training and perspective, it's like the fact that they can self-govern and, you know, bring up people from their own country to do that type of work. That's a great thing because what we can lend them is support, not necessarily just financially and economically, but you know, we have resources, we have depth of knowledge that maybe they don't have in those areas. And that can lend a lot of support to other countries being more self-sufficient in those areas. Yeah. Well, we've talked about uh, on this podcast in the past, um, you know, how there are U S special forces teams in the Philippines. There is, uh, you know, special forces detachment Korea and South Korea. And these are very light footprint commitments that we have small groups mm-hmm. of guys, um, doing a quiet but important contribution that has um, outsized effects. These guys end up punching way above their weight belt because of the you know long-term relationships that they're able to make with people in these countries. Yeah, it's. Um, I know there's a lot of cooperation in Africa as well, certain portions, especially Eastern Africa. But um, you know, it's it's those partnerships, those quiet partnerships that you talk about. You know, it's 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 not common knowledge. It's it's not something that the intel community is going to crow about. But you know, those types of training programs, those types of groups that can you know forward deploy and work with their counterterrorism uh, compatriots from you know Nigeria, from Kenya, from Tanzania, things like that it allows them to build that knowledge in country in house instead of having to go outside and we come in, we help train them and then they're able to do it themselves, you know, maybe not as efficiently at first, but it allows them to have that skill set, And then we don't have to go in. We don't have to send in a huge group of military folks to do the job like we did in Afghanistan. So. So Shannon, when I introduced you on the podcast, I said that you're the founder and CEO of Lockdown Your Life. Before we let you go, um, do you want to just let us know what you're doing over there? Yeah, I I run a company. It's a small security consulting practice, and I do. I'm, I used to do a little bit of everything, but I'm more doing online investigations, mostly stalking harassment cases right now. Um, oddly enough, but um, I work with a couple of forensic analysts and um, digital forensic analysts on, you know, online cases and some hacking, ethical hacking only, um, uh, things like that. So that's kind of my area of expertise now. I would think it makes sense to have a female who's an expert in the field go after, you know, the stalking thing, because we know that's primarily males. There's probably females who are more comfortable speaking with someone who could relate to the issue. You know, it happens more often than you think. Um, you know, cyberbullying and online harassment has become a huge issue. I mean, I, I just recently had a client out of Italy who her ex-husband is stalking her. And, you know, it's been, it's, she's been doing it for six years trying to get rid of him. And, you know, Jeez. it's bad. It's, things like that happen all the time. 
Uh, so if you want to check out Shannon's uh, company on Twitter, it's at Lockdown Your Life, but spelled Lockdown You Are Life at Lockdown You Are Life on Twitter, and then on Instagram, Lockdown Your Life, spelled regular. Um, anything else before we wrap this up? This has been a great discussion. No, oh, I really just appreciate the opportunity. It's been great. Um, and I'd love to come back sometime. That'd be great. Thanks. Well, and thanks to James Powell for uh, introducing us to you. Yeah. Thanks for coming great, on, guys. Shannon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day. Appreciate it. So wrapping things up, you were talking about like kind of reckless statements made during the primaries by Donald Trump. It really wasn't just him because what came to mind for me and I Googled it uh, just to make sure I had the quote right, right. Like, I remember Ted Cruz during the primary saying, and this is the direct quote, we will utterly destroy ISIS. We will carpet bomb them into oblivion. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if sand can glow in the dark, but we're going to find out. And I got to be honest, like, as a civilian, and Ted Cruz is a civilian as well, I do not get these people that are like, fuck yeah. But, like, there's nothing badass about being someone who has never seen combat and getting up there on a microphone and, and sounding tough and making as, like, crazy of a statement as you can. Like, I, I just don't get it. And I actually... He's going to send your sons and daughters to kill people. That's what he's really talking about. Yeah, I, like, on some level, when someone like I John McCain... I got bone McCain, spurs. I couldn't serve in <laughs> Nam. Yeah, like, well, I was gonna say, on some level, when, like, John McCain made statements like, you know, bomb He's, Iran He would stuff, say, he said a lot of stupid uh, stuff. But my feeling yeah. was, yes, this is kind of reckless, but you know what? At least John McCain is a guy who's seen combat as a POW. I have a lot less respect when it comes from someone like Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, and that's just yeah. me. It has nothing to do with party. Same thing if Democrats are making these statements, which, to be fair, it's the Republicans who, are, who make a lot more reckless statements on foreign policy and military aggression. Well, what they're doing is appealing to their base, which is those people I talked about who are like, yeah, let's just carpet bomb them. Let's blow everybody up. If we can just stack the bodies and kill more, we'll be good. I genuinely don't get, like, that's the last thing I've ever wanted to be in, as someone in the media, like a guy who sits in an air-conditioned studio <laughs> and is banging on the desk. Like, that's why, to be fair, someone like Tommy Lahren annoys me when, you know, she's, like, advocating for war and just my feel. I, First of all, I'm like, who are these veterans who are like, yeah, to this? And then I'm like... Why would you advocate for war? I don't... I really don't like get it. A, yeah. Like, what what sacrifice are you willing to make if we actually go to a war other than, you know, advocating for it in an air-conditioned studio in front of a camera? Like, there's nothing heroic about that. Well, that's what I said even about those retired generals. Who are they? McIrney, Volley. And then uh, fake it's CIA Jim McInerney, fe- right? McInerney yeah. and, and fake CIA man Wayne Simmons, uh, uh, always on television advocating for war and carpet bombing everyone. They they were big advocates for the uh, invasion of Iraq in two thousand three, and it's like, okay, guys, you're you're retired, you're on Tricare, you got a cush gig at Fox News. Meanwhile, you got eighteen year old kids who are fucking fighting and dying and bleeding in the streets of Basra, Baghdad, Mosul. Ramadi, that shit went on for years, and they just—I mean, it didn't phase them at all. They just kept going, advocating for war in more countries like Iran, North Korea. I mean, they wanted to invade—you uh, know—something like seven or eight countries simultaneously. Yeah, I, I genuinely don't get it, and especially when you see guys come back—you know, not just guys who dies die, guys who come back with you know limbs missing, guys who have been on the podcast like Mike Schlitz. And you really have to ask yourself, like, this. I mean, 
this should be only this should only be done when it is the last option available. So that's why I don't get and the advocating the, for war. The in North wor- Korea. And the worst reason to advocate for war, perhaps, is because it makes you feel tough. Yeah. Because it makes you feel like you're a tough guy. You're going to go on the radio. You're going to go on television and advocate for war. You're going to advocate for some kid to go overseas and do the dirty work so you can sound tough. Yeah. That's the most pussified thing I have ever fucking seen in my life. Like, knock it the fuck off, seriously. Especially if you've never been to war. You've never seen the dead bodies. You've never seen the human costs. You've never seen the children crying when you raid their house in the middle of the night. Just shut the fuck up, seriously. Yeah. I'm sick of that. Do you do you think that's like a symptom of of people in America like just watching too many war movies, yeah, glorifying I do. too much? Yeah, I, being on this podcast, I've I've always tried to be someone who you know advocates for veteran issues and stuff like that. But I'm never a cheerleader for no. let's go into more wars. To me, that's not what patriotism and, is about. And I totally understand that wars are sometimes necessary, and this is what you have to do. And you know, wars build states. War, war makes states. I mean, that's a, a classic political science term. There's some truth to it. Um, you know, there's a need for military actions. I'm not some pinko liberal commie, no, you know. I, 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 <laughs> you would be the last person. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand there's a need for military action at times, but it's not like, like if we're just doing or we're just going to war, we're just advocating war because it's a way for us to look in the mirror while we jack ourselves off. Like, we've got serious <laughs> problems, man. Yeah. So, well, I mean, as a guy who's been to Korea, you've been to the DMZ, you know, we kind of got Shannon's take on things. Like, what what do you think needs to be done at this point? Because we can't just let this guy continue to be reckless. And, no, I, you know. I don't think we should just let him continue unabated by any means. I think um, we should ramp up, and I say this not knowing exactly what is going on, because there's a lot of classified information that I'm not privy to. Um, I don't believe we have a lot of um, intelligence information from inside North Korea, like sources and things like that. I think we should ramp up some fairly aggressive intelligence programs focused on North Korea. If we haven't done it already, if we have, then whoever that spy master is, I give him or her a little pat on the back. Yeah. Good work. Um, I think we need to do a lot of preparing um, as far as um, building infrastructure, getting things ready in case there is that collapse I talked of. We're going to have to reintegrate 5 million very traumatized people into the modern, fast-paced, transnational, capitalistic, democratic system. I mean, that's a talk about culture shock. And we need to prepare for all that now. Um, I think we can do a lot of a lot more with information operations. We've done a little bit. I think we can do a lot more in kind of paving the way. So it'd be kind of um, sending a, um, a, uh, a influence mission and influence operation and kind of planting an idea, planting the seed in the minds of the North Korean people of the idea of reunification, of what life is like in the outside world, to try to accustom them to this concept so that if it happens, it's not as traumatizing, it's not as surprising, so that when the, when the, if the collapse comes, if the, if the war happens, if sadly if that does happen at the end of hostilities, they already have an idea in their mind of what their future could look like. And I think that would drastically change things and make things, well, you know, a hell of a lot easier in the long run. So those are a few things that I think we should be doing a little bit more. 
if if there are in fact American spies in North Korea, like I can't. Well, they, they wouldn't be American spies. They would be Korean spies that work for yes. us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I could. I can't imagine how you know crazy of a job that must be. That's not like if you know if you spy on America. The most recent example I could think of that guy Jonathan Pollard. They put him in jail for several yeah. decades. He gets released. Like I'm pretty sure if you're a spy working on behalf of America in North Korea they will fucking kill you in a brutal fashion. Like, Oh, no question. No question. I mean, that's probably the most dangerous job in the world. If, if, uh, if anyone's doing it, do you think there are people doing it I don't who know. are in inside the state? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, maybe the South Koreans are running sources across the DMZ. Um, I can only tell you based on totally anecdotal evidence and conversations I've had with people, um, who admittedly are not read on to all of the programs that are going on, but they give the opinion based on where they sit that we don't have anyone in North Korea. Yeah. That we don't have anyone, we don't have any boots on the ground, so to speak. Um, but that could be wrong. And yeah. And, and, and if that's the case, it is kind of scary because we definitely have people everywhere else, whether it's Russia or any of these even countries. even Russia is very hard to work in for our guys but yeah no one nowhere there's got to be someone in Russia oh that we it's so much easier to to acclimate into that society than to go into North Korea for we we operate in in Russia I mean that's not a secret um the uh yeah North Korea is the ultimate denied environment um and as far as like doing sending like US special forces people to do like sneaky Pete stuff like forget it just forget it <laughs> there's no way yeah Wow. Well, this has been an awesome episode. I mean, we covered some positive news with Fred Galvin and and some pretty scary stuff uh, in terms of North Korea with Shannon Miller. Great having her on. Uh, And I guess that that about wraps it up for us. Yeah, I think that's it. Who's on next episode? Next episode, I'm looking at the, uh, I'm looking behind you. Oh, Jack Devine back in studio. Well, he's going to be back, but in studio this time. That's going to be a great one. Yeah, I'm and looking forward to Dr. That. Leonard Wong, who I know you're excited for, yes. is coming on the show after that. So we have some great stuff planned. And I, I have to do some work um, booking people for uh, next month. Yeah, I mean, well, hey, I'm the guy who's supposed to be booking people, I'll, I'll, although I'll, I know you have some contacts. I'll reach, out, I'll reach out to some people. And people are already like, when is Mike finding part two? So that'll be next month yes. at some point. Yeah. Um, and as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you could receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. I saw they're already putting up episodes of Inside the Team Room Snipers, which is really cool. Isaiah Burkhart, Nick Betts, Jason Delgado, Nick Irving. That should be a really good one. Um, Drew Wallace filmed that. SoftRep TV's premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV, and that's at softreptv.us, and take advantage of a limited-time offer of 50% off your membership. That's only $4.99 a month. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you are definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys. So you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've sent in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, 
and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. I know we have some great stuff uh, in store for future crates. As always, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoftRepRadio. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's huge. Uh, we always appreciate seeing those. You can follow Jack on Twitter, at JackMurphyRGR. On Instagram, at JackMcMurph. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Ian Scotto, and we're excited for uh, Jack Devine on the next episode. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Softrep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.